All right, uh, we, are, we have one more talk between uh, us and the lavish lunch that we have setting up. It's not there yet, don't rush out. Um, so Connie Benson returning to her, uh, her roots here, uh, formerly from Northwestern, now at UC San Diego. Rush. Oh. Sorry. <laughs> All those people from Northwestern were insulted. Or the reverse. Connie, go. <laughs> Opportunistic infection. I always hate to follow tall people. So hopefully you can hear me. <laughs> So thank you for asking me to speak on one of my favorite topics, and I'm going to continue with the CROI update by reviewing the data from CROI on tuberculosis and other opportunistic infections. And you can read about my financial relationships and the learning objectives for this talk at your leisure in the syllabus. So I'm going to dive right into what's new in TB treatment and prevention. And the reason for this is just to highlight one singular fact that tuberculosis is the single most common infectious cause of death globally, worldwide, irrespective of HIV, and it's the most common cause of death globally for people living with HIV. Even though we have low rates of tuberculosis in the US, we continue to see about nine to 10,000 cases of active TB per year and certain parts of the US have double the background prevalence and incidence of tuberculosis, in particular where I live in San Diego, and the issues at the border are making that even more compelling. So this first talk is a presentation that was based on findings from the previous CROI, not this most recent one, that suggested that the combination of rifapentine one of the more active rifamycins in the rifamycin class of drugs used for treatment and prevention of TB, when given with dolutegravir, may be associated with a higher than expected rate of rifamycin-associated hypersensitivity reaction or hepatotoxicity related to the combination of the two drugs. That was a four-patient study done at the NIH Clinical Center two years ago and recently published and this was a study attempting to build on that concept to look at the safety and the pharmacokinetics of using the three-month regimen of once-weekly isoniazid and once-weekly rifapentine in people who are receiving dolutegravir therapy. I won't bore you with a lot of the details about the pharmacokinetic design, but just to summarize, there was intensive pharmacokinetic sampling done for patients who were receiving dolutegravir alone, and then dolutegravir after the third dose of rifapentine and isoniazid, and then after the eighth dose. And they measured safety laboratories, CRP as a measure of inflammatory response, viral load as a measure of uh, the effectiveness of dolutegravir therapy, and Suffice it to say, summarizing from the 61 patients who were randomized in this study and the 60 patients who completed all doses, the CRP remained normal at all time points, the viral load remained fully undetectable, 
at all time points with one exception. And that was a patient who had difficulty with adherence and after counseling and readdressing adherence resuppressed. There were only three grade two or grade three adverse events, only one of which was a flu-like illness attributed to rifapentine hypersensitivity reaction. So based on these data, one would suggest that it probably is safe to use this three-month regimen for prevention of TB in people who are latently infected when they're receiving dolutegravir. We've heard a lot also about cohort studies of pregnant women. Last year's CROI presented a very nice randomized controlled trial in pregnant women looking at immediate isoniazid preventive therapy compared with deferred isoniazid preventive therapy waiting until after delivery and suggested that there was a higher rate of adverse pregnancy outcomes in people who got isoniazid preventive therapy during the course of pregnancy. This was an, uh, this year's CROI presented a, a complementary study on women with HIV who did not have tuberculosis disease. This was an observational cohort, not a randomized controlled trial, but the difference between this cohort and the one that uh, was enrolled through the IMPACT network presented the previous year is that the women who received isoniazid preventive therapy in this cohort had a clinical indication for doing so. And they then compared the women who were completed their pregnancy and did not receive IPT with the women who received isoniazid therapy for a clinical indication. And the summary outcome from this study as well showed that there were no adverse pregnancy outcomes associated with exposure to IPT in this cohort. And in fact, those who did not receive IPT actually had little higher rates of adverse pregnancy outcomes than those who received IPT. I think the question is still out there and deserves further exploration, but at least when there's a a clear clinical indication for a pregnant woman needing isoniazid preventive therapy, there may be support for continuing to do so. The next study may seem like a bit of a wonky study to all of you, but I think it has very important clinical implications for those of us who, ex- who are treating multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. To highlight uh, in the background, MDR-TB is a rising part of the TB global epidemic. While overall cases are declining globally, MDR-TB is rising globally. And the WHO has just issued a series of new recommendations for treatment of MDR-TB, including in people with HIV, and also including the option for a shorter course of MDR-TB therapy. Conventional therapy has been 18 to 24 months. Short course regimens are a combination of, of drugs for nine to 12 months. If you are using a short course therapy, one of the recommendations is to use high-dose isoniazid. We do that routinely in San Diego in the MDR-TB patients that we see as one of the components of an active drug regimen for treating MDR-TB. Just by way of review, there are two key INH resistance mutations that confer low or high-level resistance. A CAT-G mutation confers high-level resistance to isoniazid, and an INHA confers low-level resistance. 
one would imagine that in the presence of an INHA mutation, low-level resistance, you may be able to overcome that with high-dose isoniazid. So this study attempted to look at the antibacterial effect as measured by early bactericidal activity based on serial sputum cultures and time to positivity in liquid cultures of different doses of isoniazid given with MDR in patients with MDR-TB. There were two groups in this presentation. The first group had INH-resistant tuberculosis and an INHA mutation. And they were randomized to receive INH in a dose of 5, 10, or 15 milligrams per kilogram per day, and then had early bactericidal activity measured. Group two were patients with INH-sensitive tuberculosis who got conventional doses of INH, and those two groups were compared. There is a third group still accruing of this study looking at people with a CAT-G mutation, and I won't talk about those data. But the summary slide here presents the outcome in the patients who were randomized. Over on the left side of the slide are individuals who received, who were isoniazid resistant and received a five milligram per kilogram per day dose for seven days. This group is the 10 milligram dose and this group is the 15 milligram dose and compared with the control group of INH sensitive patients who received a conventional INH dose. And what you can see here is that at 10 milligrams per kilogram or 15 milligrams per kilogram per day, there's extensive early bactericidal activity of the isoniazid in the component regimen, regardless of INH sensitivity or not. And those early bactericidal activity was similar to a conventional dose of INH in someone who has drug-sensitive disease. So I think just outlining the small number of people who had adverse events that were not related to INH, this also proved to be safe in the regimen for people with MDRTB. So I think providing uh, good support for high-dose isoniazid, both from a safety perspective and an early bactericidal activity perspective when treating MDRTB with a short course regimen. The next study was also based on a lot of data that have been generated globally with the use of protease inhibitor regimens in the treatment of TB. As you know, the only two drugs that are currently recommended for use in treating active TB in patients with HIV are an efavirenz-based regimen or dolutegravir or raltegravir-based regimens. Dolutegravir and raltegravir are not uh, routinely available globally yet, but uh, also in that setting, what has been done in patients who cannot receive an efavirenz-based regimen or an integrase inhibitor-based regimen is to use lopinavir-ritonavir, double the dose, and use it with a standard rifampin-containing TB regimen. This is very effective but double the dose of lopinavir-ritonavir, as you can imagine, is not very well tolerated. So the investigators who presented this study attempted to look at a better tolerated protease inhibitor-based regimen, darunavir-ritonavir, and following that same path, doubling the dose of, of darunavir-ritonavir and using it together with rifampin. Again, I won't bore you with all the details of the PK sampling, but the outcome of this study 
after the first four patients were enrolled, up here in the top part of the left-hand side of the slide shows you the first four patients. And each one of them had absolutely dramatic elevations of ALT. And the study was stopped. And I think the point to be made from this study is that the double dose of darunavir ritonavir had unacceptable hepatotoxicity that was immediately evident. Rifampin co-administration markedly reduced the concentrations of darunavir ritonavir. And only with the twice daily dose did you achieve trough concentrations of the protease inhibitor that were in keeping with what we would expect to be adequate for antiretroviral therapy. But because of the dramatic hepatotoxicity, this is not a usable regimen. And then the last TB study that was presented at CROI this year looked at, again, in multidrug resistant tuberculosis using a combination of the two new drugs that we have available that are active against MDR-TB, bedaquiline and delaminate. The, in most treatment recommendations, these drugs have been recommended not to be used together because they both are... Uh, associated with QTC prolongation and the potential for torsade in patients who may have prolonged QTC intervals. And the question has always been that the peak effect on the QTC interval for bedaquiline occurs after 16 to 18 weeks of therapy at eight weeks for delaminid. And in a controlled setting, the hypothesis of this study was that maybe you could actually use the two in combination together because their effects were different in terms of their peak concentrations and their peak effect on the QTC interval. And with regular ECG monitoring, you may be able to get people through an MDR-TB regimen fairly safely. This was a randomized clinical trial that looked at patients receiving bedaquiline alone plus optimized background TB therapy delaminid alone plus optimized background TB therapy, the combination of the two plus optimized drugs in the background. And they were all followed initially with triplicate ECGs done very frequently in an inpatient hospital setting. This looks like a very complicated graph over here, but is just showing you the trends in QTC intervals in terms of change from baseline with the dotted lines here being baseline. And you can't always see all the little um, dots and Xs and pluses and zeros, but the bottom line here was at best, using the two drugs together had, or at most, an additive effect. And that additive effect did not increase the QTC by more than eight to 20 milliseconds. Nobody had a grade three or four prolongation of QTC Nobody had a prolongation beyond 500 milliseconds, which is the risk factor associated with torsade, and there were no cardiovascular adverse events. This has now made it into the guidelines as something safe to use for treatment of MDR-TB, and particularly including in a short course regimen for MDR-TB. So let's talk about some of the other opportunistic infections. Um, this next one is focusing on cryptococcal meningitis, and most of you will remember the results from the published COAT trial, which looked at early ART versus delayed ART administered during the course of acute cryptococcal meningitis. 
The findings from that trial showed that patients had higher mortality if they got immediate antiretroviral therapy in the, se in the setting of cryptococcal meningitis. And hence the recommendation to delay antiretroviral therapy for four to five weeks before starting in people who had active meningitis. This was an attempt to look at some of the cofactors that might have contributed to that higher mortality in people with cryptococcal meningitis. And they had samples obtained from the randomized study. They selected samples at random and tested them for CMB viremia using a CMB DNA assay. And what you can see from this Kaplan-Meier survival curve is that people who were CMV viremic by any measure of CMV DNA positivity had a, a substantially higher mortality with active cryptococcal meningitis than people who were CMV negative. So this may indeed be one of the cofactors associated with the higher mortality seen in the COAT trial in people who got earlier antiretroviral therapy. So it may not just be an effect of antiretroviral therapy. Um, next study also looks at uh, question related, clinical question related to cryptococcal disease. As you are aware, there is an appreciable rate or prevalence of asymptomatic cryptococcal anagenemia in places around the globe where cryptococcal disease is highly endemic. And the WHO and other uh, Guidelines bodies have recommended preemptive therapy with fluconazole to prevent cryptococcal meningitis in people who have asymptomatic cryptococcal anagenemia once you've ruled out impending cryptococcal meningitis itself. So this was an attempt to look at, is the same true? Is there a higher risk in people who have asymptomatic cryptococcal anagenemia at the time of virologic failure of their antiretroviral therapy regimens. Again, this was a stored sample test looking at a retrospective review from a large study of people being followed for antiretroviral therapy. And among a thousand, over a thousand patients who experienced virologic failure in their cohort, they identified 35 patients who had asymptomatic cryptococcal anagenemia. Two of those patients went on to develop cryptococcal meningitis and were successfully treated. And they looked at the six-month meningitis-free survival with and without preemptive therapy with fluconazole in the setting of virologic failure and identified a reduced rate of or a higher uh, benefit of those who received some fluconazole therapy in response to their cryptococcal anagenemia. And the authors have recommended that cryptococcal antigen screening might be something you look at if you're in a high endemic, high prevalence region and your patients have virologic failure for some period of time with the the threshold being viral loads of greater than 5,000 copies. I think this is a study that's primarily applicable in resource-limited settings where people may not get viral load monitoring as frequently or as intensively as we are able to do it, but uh, it's something to consider in the setting uh, where you have higher than background rates of cryptococcal disease. The next study is a study of primary pneumocystis prophylaxis this was an interesting study design and I think was uh, triggered by the fact that we're not seeing very much 
pneumocystis pneumonia anymore in people who are receiving antiretroviral therapy. But this is a study done by the European COHERE cohort study. It's a kind of their equivalent of the NA Accord, only in Europe. And they looked at almost 10,000 patients who were in the COHERE cohort, who were on antiretroviral therapy, who had experienced a CD4 count of less than 200, and were candidates for pneumocystis prophylaxis based on their CD4 counts. And they looked in a monitoring phase of individuals until they were fully suppressed on antiretroviral therapy, and then looked at outcomes of pneumocystis pneumonia in the cohort. And what they did is not randomizing patients themselves, but actually a simulation of three different randomized trials using the data that they were collecting observationally from their cohort. And the simulated trial A looked at the question of whether it was better to continue pneumocystis prophylaxis some once patients were fully suppressed virologically or to stop it. Trial B was a simulation looking at the question of if their CD4 count required starting pneumocystis prophylaxis or not in when they were virologically suppressed. And the third simulated trial looked at people who were on prophylaxis or were not on prophylaxis and didn't had no intervention. And interestingly, um, the hazard ratio estimates were a little bit higher in each of those trials for the occurrence of pneumocystis pneumonia, but these were not statistically significant hazard ratios. And the overall incidence of pneumocystis pneumonia in their observational cohort followed for more than 18,000 person years of follow-up was that the incidence was so low that irrespective of CD4 count and irrespective of any of those scenarios, if you're virally suppressed, your risk of pneumocystis is so low, you don't need PCP prophylaxis. And they adjusted hazard ratios for a number of other risk factors for pneumocystis pneumonia, and the result was the same. So I think we're going to see an evolution in primary prophylaxis recommendations and guidelines as well. The next study to highlight was a study looking at recurrent cervical high-grade squamous intraepithelial lesions in women with HIV infection, addressing a key clinical question about cervical cancer risk in women with HIV. And as you know, there's an appreciable rate once you receive therapy for high-grade cervical lesions of recurrence of those lesions whether you're HIV infected or not. And this study attempted to look at an intervention using the quadrivalent HPV vaccine and attempting to boost the immune response to, to uh, HPV in women who had high-grade lesions. So it was a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial, 180 women with HIV who already had high-grade cervical lesions, Women were randomized to receive the vaccine or placebo at entry week four and week 26. All of the women at week four underwent a LEAP procedure for treatment of their high-grade cervical lesions and their uh, evidence of disease at the time of the week four LEAP is listed here. 
97% of the women completed vaccines and had biopsy results available at week 22 and 52 following vaccination. And the bottom part of the graph here shows you the results of the study. And I won't belabor the point, it was a negative study. Using quadrivalent vaccine had no effect on recurrence of high-grade lesions in women who underwent a LEAP procedure for treatment of those high-grade lesions. The rate of recurrence was the same in the placebo, placebo and vaccine arm. So not a good approach for trying to prevent recurrence of high-grade lesions. Um, I think, I just know, okay. The next study, I'm moving into the sphere of hepatitis viruses and this was a nice study presented by our colleagues at University of Pittsburgh attempting to address another important clinical question. If you have women who, have, who are pregnant and have hepatitis C, is it safe to treat them if they need to be treated for their hepatitis C during the course of pregnancy? They started out attempting to do a randomized clinical trial and then revised it to a single arm pilot trial and then revised it to a very small pilot trial based on a number of factors. While they were able to identify 170 HCV infected pregnant women, among those 170 pregnant women who were HCV positive, their providers would allow them to be treated in a trial only 29 of those patients. Of the 29 patients that they screened for HCV treatment, only nine of them actually were eligible based on the screening criteria to receive hepatitis C therapy. So it was a complex population, complex study design, but they managed to soldier through and treat nine women during pregnancy with cefospivir and ledipasvir. And the good news from the trial is that they had 100% sustained virological response in eight of the patients with one still in follow-up. Five infants completed a full, month, uh, a full 12 months after delivery of follow-up and four are still ongoing. And the outcomes from the pregnancy, looking at adverse events, they were modest and manageable. Maternal adverse events greater than grade two were zero. The gestational age at delivery was equivalent to standard of care, as was birth weight. The infant-related adverse events were zero, and no infants were infected after 12 months of follow-up of the infants. So again, a very small pilot study, but suggesting that as we accumulate data, it may actually be safe to treat pregnant women with poor hepatitis C if there's a clear clinical indication for doing so during pregnancy. The next HCV uh, study I'm going to talk about, and you'll notice I'm not talking about any treatment trials in HCV because there aren't any more. They're all done. HCV is curable. We're going to eradicate the disease. However, we still have a population of, uh, at appreciable risk for reinfection, and that's what this study looked at. A New York acute hepatitis C surveillance network is a longitudinal follow-up study looking at outcomes of acute hepatitis C. They looked at patients who cleared their hepatitis C either spontaneously or after achieving a sustained virologic response on direct antiviral uh, acting antiviral agent therapy. 
They then looked at the occurrence rate of acute reinfection based on a first noted ALT elevation or HCV viremia during follow-up. Of the 304 patients who cleared HCV, 33 were reinfected. They subsequently cleared. The incident rate, incidence rate for reinfection was about fourfold higher than the primary rate of HCV infection, incidence rate for HCV infection. They had six second reinfections with an incident rate of 8.7 per 100 years of follow-up. So I think this just highlights the point that once you've cured somebody of hepatitis C, they are still at risk for reinfection if they're re-exposed, and that's something that we all need to be counseling patients about. And then my last slide talks about we're getting into the realm now, now that we've addressed hepatitis C, we're moving into the realm of looking at methods for cure of hepatitis B. There were three interesting presentations. These were not cures per se, but functional cures based on rates of surface antigen clearance. And most of you are aware that once people become infected and are surface antigenemia uh, positive, their rate of clearance over time is really pretty low. And once they have active hepatitis B um, in the setting of HIV, the background rate of clearance has been reported to be less than 5%. So this just looked at a group of individuals who had what was being described as functional cure of hepatitis B based on clearance of their surface antigen and antigenemia. This first cohort reported a 10% clearance rate over 11 years of follow-up and suggested that lower baseline CD4 and hepatitis E antigenemia and an AIDS diagnosis were actually associated with a higher seroconversion rate. That seems counterintuitive. In a couple of prospective cohorts, they looked at patients who started on a tenofovir-based ART regimen. So this first is just active hepatitis B, not on antiretroviral therapy. The second cohort were active hepatitis B on a tenofovir-based antiretroviral therapy regimen, and they had a 10% surface antigen clearance over two years of follow-up. So dramatically better in patients who are on a tenofovir-based regimen. And then equally... Uh, in patients with a higher baseline CD4 count on a tenofovir or TAF-based ART regimen, the, they reported an 18.4% antigen seroconversion rate over a median of 41 months. And again, with a number of factors that were associated with higher or lower conversion rates. And so I interpreted these data from Croy to suggest that in patients who are healthier, who have active hepatitis B, who are receiving a tenofovir-based regimen, we may actually be seeing a higher surface antigen clearance rate than what has traditionally been reported in the past. And this will be sort of the background in which we start to invoke some of the approaches that we're going to be seeing reported from next year's update on methods to eradicate or functionally cure hepatitis B. So in summary, uh, just making the point again that globally tuberculosis is the most common cause of death in people living with HIV. Research in this area is intensifying and the field is actually changing rapidly in terms of new drugs, new regimens, and approaches. 
research in TB in contrast to our experience with HIV is actually mostly being done in resource limited settings, but is giving us a substantial body of information that will assist helping us treat tuberculosis in our setting. ART regimens continue to improve, and as a consequence, OIs continue to decline in incidence and impact, but the key to success in OI treatment and prevention is no longer preventive prophylaxis for those OIs, but effective antiretroviral therapy. And I'll stop there. Thanks, Connie. Um, th there are several questions. Uh, we have time for more if you have questions to write down on the cards. Um, Connie, I was thinking as we were talking uh, last night about the, you know, obviously a lot of these OIs are much more, uh, more, much less common than they, uh, than they had been. Um, but we also have an aging population of patients. And even if they're suppressed, they're aging and there's some immune attrition associated with aging. Any sense of, of kind of even a slow increase in OIs as the, as the patient population ages? No, the, the tracking data that the European cohorts report and the CDC reports, we've seen just a pretty level rate of most of the major OIs in the US. And the vast majority of those are occurring in people who are not in care, not receiving antiretroviral therapy or not receiving suppressive or effective antiretroviral therapy. Great. Um, question about patients, uh, candidates for the um, uh, daily one month latent TB treatment regimen. Ah, that's a good question. So I did that update last year. <laughs> so that's now been published as you all know, but the one month regimen was done all in HIV infected individuals. Most of those were enrolled in resource limited settings. Only about 90 of the 3000 patients were enrolled in the US. And the patients who were enrolled from a low or medium prevalence TB setting had to be tuberculin skin test positive or IGRA positive. Those who were enrolled from a high prevalence TB setting, meaning a prevalence of tuberculosis of greater than 100 cases or 60 cases per 100,000 population, which doesn't describe the US, could be enrolled without a positive tuberculin skin test or IGRA. But the point to be made there is that in many areas of the world with HIV infection, the background prevalence of tuberculosis is so high that you can see high rates of tuberculosis irrespective of latent TB infection. Most of it is acute infection or recently transmitted infection, not reactivation from latent TB. And so that was the background in which that trial was done. It was a randomized trial using one month of daily INH and rifapentine versus daily INH alone given for nine months. And the results showed that the, back, that the rate of occurrence, the incidence rate for TB was exactly the same in both regimens. And the INH rifapentine regimen given for one month, as you might imagine, had a much higher treatment and completion rate and the rate of adverse events while slightly higher was not much not statistically different from that in the nine-month INH arm and the 
conclusion of the study is that one month of INH and rifapentine is likely to be a very effective regimen for TB prevention, even in high background prevalence countries. So the recommendations have, since the article was just published, the re recommendations haven't made it yet into any guidelines, but um, most of the patients in that study were really kind of all comers. The antiretroviral therapy that was used for that study were efavirenz and nevirapine-based regimens. So only people who were getting an efavirenz or a nevirapine-based regimen were eligible to enroll and receive antiretroviral therapy. Most people were on antiretroviral therapy and were reasonably well suppressed, and most about 80% were suppressed below the limit of detection in the study. So they were on effective therapy during follow-up and had similar outcomes as well. Um, the only glimmer that there might be some candidates that might not be good for that short or ultimately short course regimen were people with very low CD4 counts. The, if you looked at the Kaplan-Meier curves followed out over time, there was a slightly higher rate of TB that occurred in people who enrolled in the study with less than 200 CD4 counts and whose CD4 counts remained low during follow-up. So those may, the people with very low CD4 counts may not be the ideal candidate for short course preventive therapy regimen with one month of INH and rifapentine. Connie, the next question uh, has to do with the fact that we're not so routinely measuring CD4s anymore in our patients that are virally suppressed. Um, we know there's a risk of CD4 decline um, even with viral suppression. Uh, what do you recommend in terms of monitoring that and what implications does the declining CD4 have on kind of reconsidering uh, uh, OI prophylaxis? Well, you know, I think there's uh, sort of a data-free zone, if you will, about around that question. But if you, if you extrapolate from the data that I just showed you from the COHERE study, at least for pneumocystis, it would suggest that irrespective of those scenarios, low CD4 or not, the rate of pneumocystis pneumonia is so low that if you're virally suppressed, that there's no need for PCP prophylaxis. And so even if you have a declining CD4, if you're still on effective antiretroviral therapy and you're fully suppressed, I think those data would support not using prophylaxis. There's already a recommendation not to use primary MAC prophylaxis any longer for the same reasons, and we're accumulating even more data relative to that point. So I think the era of primary prophylaxis against these opportunistic infections was an era in which we did not have effective antiretroviral therapy that could fully suppress viral loads for prolonged periods of time. I think we're beyond that now, and I think we're rethinking all of the recommendations for prophylaxis. So I think you've answered this already, but um, uh, a question was on the same topic, really. Somebody comes in, um, newly HIV diagnosed, but very advanced disease. Um, do you start PCP prophylaxis or PJP prophylaxis for even a period of time as you're starting the ARVs? You know, there are other studies that mostly observational studies also from large cohorts that suggest you don't have to, but it's still in the guidelines recommendations that you administer primary prophylaxis in that setting for a short period of time until you've achieved viral load suppression and 
are stable on your antiretroviral therapy. The same is not the case for MAC anymore. So people who are very low, we just don't use primary MAC prophylaxis anymore. And that's because the rates are so low, even in that scenario, that there's no real need, there's no benefit to administering MAC prophylaxis. Here's a question I think is, um, is, is an interesting one. You commented that HCV reinfection can happen, obviously. Um, is it with the same genotype? Is there any evidence of protection of the original genotype that the person had? Are the reinfections the same genotype or different ones? Now, maybe someone else who saw that presentation remembers. I don't remember that they presented the genotypes of the reinfections. But, um, you know, I, I think for me, that answer, that question hasn't been answered, but I would assume that they're being infected with genotypes that are circulating in the community and whether it's exactly the same genotype they had before, I would argue is probably not. But there is an ongoing question at that and in the realm of developing HCV vaccines, the ongoing question is there really antibody protection once you become infected or once you've received uh, therapy for infection. So I think that's still an unanswered question. So um, in the question of functional cure, I see Dr. Baruch in the background, um, who will be talking a lot about uh, cures later HIV. This is functional cure of HBV. Um, so um, how does a person who has achieved a functional cure of HBV uh, does that affect your choice of ART uh, therapy? Do you still kind of continue uh, HBV regimens in the, in the mix? Yeah, I think there's too little information about that question to make anyone feel comfortable to stop a tenofovir-based uh, regimen, uh, combination-based regimen for people who have chronic underlying hepatitis B. I think we'll hear a lot more data about this question because it's being studied intensively. There's a whole host of different compounds in development with um, looking at cure and functional cure, and there's a new ACTG trial that's beginning um, in should be coming up in the next few weeks. So if you have patients kind of in that setting, get them enrolled in research studies. Question about latent TB again. Um, with the weekly regimen is used, what's the dose adjustment uh, of dolutegravir um, and TAF, FTC? Um, and then I can't exactly read the rest of that, but question... Do you need to do BID, BID dosing? dosing? Right. Um, so the, the studies that have looked at treatment of TB used dolutegravir and a BID dosing because you're getting daily rifamycin therapy. The weekly three, you know, 12 weeks, um, once a week for 12-week regimen was actually with daily once daily dolutegravir and showed that the PK and the viral load uh, was similar to what you would expect with daily dolutegravir in any other setting. So I think if you're going to use rifapentine short term, even though it's a high rate, you're almost, you're pretty much done with the regimen by the time you really achieve peak um, auto-induction, there is an auto-induction phase, and by the time you reach the PK effect with the intermittent regimen, you're probably okay. 
So I'm having a little trouble reading this one, Connie. It looks like it has to do with the INH uh, double dose. Oh, in the early bactericidal study in right, right. patients who are getting high dose um, isoniazid in the background of MDR-TB, was the response similar in patients with the CAT-G mutation versus INH-A mutation? So I think I mentioned it, but if I didn't, as I was describing the study, the results of the initial um, bactericidal activity was only in the group who had uh, INHA mutations only. There is a third group being studied that has the CAT-G mutation, which confers high-level resistance. Those data aren't available yet. So that cohort is still ongoing in the study. Connie, thanks so much. Well, do we have any slides to show? No. Um, I Let me say, I thought the, the morning was really uh, wonderful. The, the talks were great. Uh, the interaction with the audience through the cards uh, was wonderful as well. So we have lunch set up outside um, in the hallway uh, just past where the breakfast was this morning. So we'll let you know when we come back.